very good to be here from London in this, our companion or link uh, parish, which extends a network that goes back between the Diocese of London and the Diocese of New York some 20 or 30 years. We're the latest addition to several relationships that already exist across the pond. And many thanks, Don and Stacey, for your uh, kind welcome, and to the vestry, and to all those I met yesterday at Red Doors as well, your food uh, programme. Apart from being um, Handel's parish church, and I always tell people St George's is in fact God's church as well as Handel's church, and regular place of worship, apart from a litany of aristocratic or prominent uh, church wardens over the centuries, including a certain Cornwallis family, and apart from our use of traditional language, I guess St George's Hanover Square is best known in literature and in reality as the place for fashionable weddings. It was good enough for your own Teddy Roosevelt as it was for Eliza Doolittle's father Alfred in My Fair Lady as he sings about getting to St George's on time. I'm getting married in the morning, ding dong, the bells are going to chime. Actually, they aren't going to chime because we only have one bell. So dong dong or ding ding, the bells are going to chime. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. It's not unusual in our culture for a bride to arrive late for her wedding. And often the closer the bride lives to the church, the longer she delays. A couple of weeks ago, we had a bride from Texas who apparently was nonchalantly putting on her dress and pulling up everything under her dress about 30 minutes after the service was due to start and she arrived unapologetically 55 minutes late from Claridge's, which is a mere five minutes away. But if for some reason the bride were to fail to turn up at all, it might seem a slightly exaggerated response, even in the part of London where I live, for the bridegroom's father to go and burn down the bride's house and slaughter her family. Yet, in the parable of the wedding feast, this is precisely the reaction of the bridegroom's father when the invited guests refuse to attend his son's wedding, sending out troops to destroy them and burn their city. What are we to conclude then when we discover that this parable is really a story of God's relationship with humanity, that the King is, in fact, God the Father, that the Son is Jesus Christ, and the invited guests are those called to become part of God's family. Should we conclude, as do some prominent atheists, that God is a vindictive, a bloodthirsty, a megalomaniacal, capriciously malevolent bully. There's another way of looking at this parable that avoids that conclusion. God invites Israel into a personal relationship with himself. 
But not only does Israel continually fail to respond to this invitation, it mistreats and even kills God's prophets who are sent to remind Israel of its calling. And this is the prelude to a general invitation sent out to the whole of humanity, not just to the Jews. God wants each person to be the bridegroom of his son, to be part of his kingdom, and he's determined to persist in the plan, even in the face of humanity's rebelliousness. God calls each and every person into a relationship of friendship with him, but this invitation must find a receptive heart. And God offers us his grace not to affirm us in our lifestyle choices, if these are not right for us, but to change us. Hence, his anger at the guest who had failed to change his clothes for the wedding feast. We must change. We must clothe ourselves in Christ, in the words of St. Paul, and put on the garments of love, of compassion, of truth, and of peace. And this is perhaps the most challenging part of this strange and shocking parable. Now, according to some scholars, today's parable is actually a combination of two parables originally spoken on different occasions, because there's a problem, and the problem is this, that the king eventually has his servants invite everyone to the wedding feast straight off the streets on the one hand, and then on the other hand he expects them to be dressed for the occasion, and excludes them if they're not dressed properly, which doesn't seem either fair or reasonable. Thus the theory of two distinct parables, each aiming at illustrating a different truth. And the first truth is the universality of God's call to salvation. Everyone, everyone is eventually invited to the feast. Everyone is called to salvation. And the invited guests who refuse to come symbolize the Israelites who failed to accept Jesus as the Messiah, and those invited later represent the Gentiles, in other words, all people, you and I. And then the second truth conveyed by the parable is that God's call requires a specific response. Accepting Jesus as Lord and Saviour, conversion of heart, putting on a wedding garment. And clothing represents identification with Christ, to be clothed with the life of Christ. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, we read in St. Paul's epistles. And the tradition of the church has understood the wedding garment to be the baptismal robe, the grace of baptismal regeneration by which we are justified and our sanctification begins. I have a good friend who is a Jesuit priest who, at weddings, always asks the couple to bring their 
individual baptismal candles so that the couple can then together light a new candle, a unity candle. You've probably seen that if you've been to Catholic weddings. And they blow out their old candles for the two are now one. And then he says, and you must forget all your old claims. So then moving on from today's gospel to the other readings, we see Isaiah, today's portion probably added in the 5th century BC, looking forward already to the end of the world, to a party to end all parties, men and women sitting down with God to be his intimates, no longer fearing annihilation from getting too close to the Lord, which was the great fear of the Israelites in the desert, the nations, that means us, will be invited to the party. He will destroy death forever, wipe away all tears, take away all shame. All are together on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And if you want to sit down at the banquet of rich food and fine wines, you have got to go to Jerusalem. Before I went on my first pilgrimage to the Holy Land, a good friend, and I know some of you are going next year, and I hope that goes well, a good friend told me that for her, being in Jerusalem was like being at the centre of the world, at the very centre, and I knew exactly what she meant when I got there, a reminder perhaps to us New Yorkers and Londoners that we aren't. We pray especially in these terrible times in Israel, in Palestine, in Gaza, for the peace of Jerusalem. So in Isaiah, location is important, and if and when you visit, you will see many devout Jews praying at the Wailing Wall. The temple itself might have been destroyed, have had a mosque built on its foundations, but this is still the place God's action is still conditioned by his promises to the land and the holy city. The holy city. It's a faith which deserves profound respect. Whereas in St. Matthew, today we get a new perspective. Things have moved on. The gospel of Jesus isn't tied to a place, but rather to metanoia, to a change of heart putting farm and business in their proper place and being willing to sacrifice them for God's sake and join the party. No more death, no more tears or absent friends, but only friendship and joy. But we are so absorbed, we're so absorbed in the demands and dull routines of life, we often don't even hear or notice the invitation. And instead of seeing what God offers, we have done what should be impossible and turned religion itself into dull routine. But, you might well point out, life isn't all happy and all clappy. God doesn't offer an escape from the pressures of life. And the Apostle Paul knew this well. We got in a slight pickle, or several pickles, this morning because uh, the reading from Philippians 
uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, is not in fact the reading uh, that you have uh, printed. Um, but in his little letter to the Philippians, Paul is quite extraordinary because not only does he have to cope with the tiresome rivalries and personal vanities of the Christian community, but he's also stuck in prison. And yet this letter is full of joy. I say again, rejoice is its constant theme. For in and amidst the troubles, Paul knows that he is showered with God's gifts. Everything else is sheer loss, outweighed by the gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Compared with the joy, everything else is counted as sheer garbage. To be a Christian is to share the joy in and amidst those troubles and those pressures. Every time we come to the Eucharist, we have a foretaste of God's final great party where our friendship with God and with one another is renewed. And the joy is intended for all people rather than just our own little club. Not that we can just roll up, as it were, lightly tripping to the altar. Rather, we have to come with the wedding garment of preparation. And you might ask, what is this preparation to receive such joy? Well, the apostle goes on to suggest that it is to learn how to be poor, how to be rich, that is, to learn to accept life as it is, whatever is handed out to us. And this refusal to be thrown by troubles, this taking the rough with the smooth, is what we call detachment. And detachment is a quality that's perhaps been much misunderstood, as if it meant despising the good things of life and morosely preferring hardship. What it does mean is discovering in life what really matters, that in the end there are just three things that last forever, faith, hope, and love, and that the greatest of these is love. So to be prepared to receive God's offer of joy is to be ready to walk in the valley of darkness without fear, knowing that the Lord has walked this way before us and that he goes on preparing for us in the valley the rich banquet of his presence. God does indeed fulfill all our needs in Christ Jesus as lavishly as only God can. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.